Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. And last time we considered Jonah's second calling to go unto Nineveh and to preach against them. And unlike the first time that the Lord called Jonah to this task, here we see that this time he obeys. The prophet went throughout that great city and began to proclaim the word of the Lord unto them, saying, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah walked through the streets of that city and called that wicked people unto repentance. As we will see here in our text this morning, that call to repentance was heard by the people of Nineveh. And it was received. And friends, this is nothing short of a miracle of God. That a nation so well known for its utter wickedness would heed the Word of God and turn to Him in genuine repentance for their sins. So with that in mind, give your attention now to the reading of God's Word from Jonah chapter 3 beginning at verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from His fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that He had said that He would do unto them, and He did it not. Thus far the reading of God's Word, let us once again ask His blessing. On it. O Heavenly Father, we do ask Thy blessing upon Thy Word. This Word of great encouragement that even the vilest, most wicked nations can repent of their sins and turn unto Thee. O Lord, let us receive this Word with gladness. And let it stir in our hearts a longing for action. A longing to see this nation that we are in come to repentance as well. O Lord, we ask that blessing would be upon the preaching of the Word. Let it go forth with power 
and authority, and let it be received with gladness and joy. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to imagine the worst government that you can think of. Some of you may be thinking of the Communist Party of China. We talked a bit about China at lunch, so maybe that's on your mind. For those of you who are in my parents' generation, who grew up during the Cold War, maybe you're thinking of Soviet Union. For those who are of an even earlier generation, you may be thinking of Nazi Germany. Well, whatever, whatever government you have in mind, now that you have it in your mind, I want you to think of what it would be like if they repented on a corporate national level. Can you imagine what it would be like if Xi Jinping were to denounce communism and its atheistic foundations and submit to Christ. Imagine the one and a half billion people of China able to worship Jehovah freely and openly with the support and protection of that government. What if Joseph Stalin and the Kremlin had repented of the millions slaughtered and sworn to govern according to Scripture? Imagine the force that the Gospel would have had if they had embraced the true religion. Imagine nearly three million people within the Soviet Union Embracing that true religion. and Imagine how, how many people they would have been able to reach. Imagine how much warfare and destruction would have been avoided under such a state. What if Hitler had taken off his iron cross and fallen prostrate before the cross of Christ, putting an end to the hatred and the bloodshed that ravished Europe. 20 million war casualties and 6 million Jews would have lived to hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the call to embrace it. The course of the world events would have changed drastically Well, that's exactly what we see here in Jonah chapter 3. Nineveh was a major power within the Assyrian Empire and the Lord did a miraculous work in them. I'm not going to stand here today and, and say that this type of change is going to happen often. We may never see it happen within our lifetimes but the Lord can and does 
radically change even the vilest nations in this world. And he uses us ordinary men and women as instruments in that change. The charge to you here today, brothers and sisters, is to fulfill your duty in calling nations unto repentance. I know this may seem like a daunting task, so I want you to be encouraged and equipped by the example of Jonah in our text. Fill your duty in calling nations unto repentance. And we'll consider this by looking at three aspects of this duty. The basis for national repentance. The act of national repentance. And the grace in national repentance. So first, let us consider the basis for national repentance. For some of you here today, this may be something that is completely foreign to you. You may have never heard preaching on this duty of nations to repent and turn to the Lord. This may even be something that goes against what you believe to be the role of the civil government. And yet, Scripture plainly teaches that there is a duty for nations, not just individuals, but nations as corporate persons to repent of their sins and to turn to Christ. Consider Psalm 2, which we sang earlier. In verse 6 we read, Yet have I set my King upon my holy hill of Zion. Jehovah has set His anointed one, Christ Jesus, to be king upon His holy hill of Zion. The Lord Jesus Christ is established as king over all things, over all men, and even over all nations. This is confirmed in Daniel 9.25 in which Christ Jesus is referred to as Messiah the Prince. And yes, this is where William Symington got the title for his book, which is probably the most extensive treatment of the doctrine of uh, Christ's kingship over the nations that's ever been written, and I would wholeheartedly recommend it to you. But you may be thinking to yourself that these are just Old Testament passages. They're Old Testament passages that have to do with Israel and the Lord being king over His people. Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, we see the same teachings of Christ. Who it is. Who it said that the Lord made him far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all and all. All principality, all power, all might, all dominion. It's a figure of speech. 
It's a figure of speech known as a synecdoche in which the different parts are given as a representative of a, as a whole. It's saying that Christ is far above every authority or every ruler or every king or every nation that there is. And this is made even more clear in Revelation 19.16 where Christ is given the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But these say nothing about national repentance. Only that Christ is King over the nations. We'll consider again Psalm 2. This time verses 10-12. through Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and ye perish from the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. This is... Jehovah declaring to Gentile kings that they are to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This is something that cannot be done if they are still committed to their wicked ways. In fact, it's given in contrast to their actions in verses 2 and 3. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. The Lord is showing that there is a repentance that takes place. He's calling them to no longer rage against Him and plot against the Messiah, but instead now to serve Him with fear and to rejoice with trembling. How can this be anything other than a call to repentance? They are called to kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all that put their trust in Him. They're to pay homage to Him, to bend the knee in submission to Him as ones who are subjects to Him. We're told that this is how they are instructed to flee the wrath that is to come. And there's no other means of escaping the just fury of Jehovah against the wicked than to repent from that wickedness and to turn unto Him. Friends, the magistrate has a religious duty. This may be absurd in our 21st century minds, but this is because our culture has so bought into the notion of secularism. And yet, this is the clear teaching of the Word of God. What are the magistrates called in Romans 13? We see there that that the magistrates are ordained by God and are ministers of God. 
And if you would have asked virtually any Christian just a few hundred years ago, they would have been in full agreement with all of these things. And yet, in our modern society, most Christians scoff at the notion that the magistrates have a religious duty and are to support, promote, and protect the true religion as Isaiah 49.23 tells us. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the, I am the Lord for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. And if you don't believe me that uh, Christians scoff at this idea, all you have to do is go online to various social media platforms and you will see the open hostility that's being expressed in conversations concerning Christian nationalism. And just as an aside, this is not me endorsing Christian nationalism or the Christian nationalist movement something which I've said many times is a cheap imitation of something uh, of the biblical doctrine of Christ's mutual kingship. I bring it up only because in those conversations, the vast majority of people have almost visceral reactions against the thought of having Christian magistrates and Christian nations. And yet the Scriptures are clear that this is a duty that is placed on all kings and nations. And it's one which can only be achieved by seeing national repentance. And this has been done before. The Roman Empire to an extent did this. The Dutch did this during the time of the Reformation, establishing a Reformed nation and a church. And perhaps the most famous example for us is the covenanted nation of Scotland during the Second Reformation. Even many states in America did this, as is evidenced by their constitutions. National repentance is not just a pipe dream that we wish would happen at some point. It's something that is commanded. It's prophesied will take place. And in many instances has happened in the past. And here is Nineveh. And Nineveh is such an instance. So let us now turn to consider the act of national repentance. And we see this in verses 5 through 9. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily unto God. 
Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? The people of Nineveh heeded the call to repentance and their obedience was plain to see. There was a profound belief in God that that led to a recognition of their national sins, of the evil ways and the violence that had plagued their society for far too long. They responded by donning sackcloth and ashes, mourning deeply for the transgressions that they committed and fervently praying that their repentance would stay the Lord's judgment. No class or section of Ninevite society was exempt from the need to humble itself before God. It did not matter one's social status or background. All were called to humble themselves and show forth the pattern of repentance. And this is a powerful testament to what true godly repentance looks like. It's the faithful preaching of God's Word and the attentive hearing of it that result in the people believing God. And then their faith compels them to take decisive action, turning away from their specific sins and demonstrating the transformative power of genuine repentance unto life. What a beautiful, visible example we are given of what true godly repentance looks like here. And notice that the call to repentance makes its way all the way to the king. And he puts down a decree of national repentance calling the people to do that which they are already doing, which is fasting and praying and repenting. Jonah didn't try to enact legislation to bring about a change in Nineveh. He wasn't out there fighting some mythical culture war using the same edgy tactics as the world does. No, He used the pure, inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God to bring about change. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 One author states there are springs of evil in the human soul that cannot be touched by legal enactment or scholastic discipline. A true and abiding recognition of God as the supreme power of life as ever near to the soul is the only worthy motive of a true repentance. And 
just as a quick aside, it's interesting here to see the structure of the repentance. And the king, in his actions, he arose from his throne and he laid his robe from him and he covered him with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. He stood up, he took off, he put on, and he sat down. The sequence of the actions of the king show that everything that he was doing was an act of repentance. It was deliberate. He was visibly proclaiming to the world that the Lord had caused a change in him and that he will cause a change in his nation. When the word of God goes out, it never returns void. Brothers and sisters, you must be encouraged in fulfilling this duty because the Lord is faithful to bring people unto repentance. When the word goes out, the work gets done. Trust the Lord to make the word effectual in the hearts and lives of those who hear it. Proclaim the call and anticipate the act of repentance. If we were to see nations repent, if we were to see our own nation to repent, then there would be sure evidences of it. It would look an awful lot like what we see the king of Nineveh doing. Setting forth a decree that the nation would repent and fast in humiliation before the Lord. Matthew Poole writes, Works, not words, are the sure signs of what, men are hum- uh, of what men are humbling themselves to the dust. Extraordinary fastings and crying unto God, these are some of their works. But God saw more than these external professing works. It's not enough to profess with your mouth. You must be put into works but it is not works which bring about repentance. It is the repentance of the heart. And so the magistrate is to lead the people of the nation in repentance, in acts of repentance, in works of repentance. The political leaders of the nation are the ones who are responsible as the heads of the nation to recognize the sin of the people corporately and to call the people unto repentance. And you may think this is crazy. But in fact, we used to see this even here in America. President John Adams called for the people of the United States to, with with the deepest humility, acknowledge before God the manifold sins and transgressions with which we are justly chargeable as individuals and as a nation, beseeching Him at the same time of His infinite grace through the uh, Redeemer of the world, freely to remit all our offenses and to incline us by His Holy Spirit to that sincere repentance and reformation which may afford us reason to hope for His inestimable favor and heavenly benediction. 
That was in the 1700s. President Abraham Lincoln did this in 1863. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now, therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the views of the Senate, I do by this my proclamation designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I do hereby request all the people to abstain on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and their respective homes in keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of the religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. And even as recently as Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson, we see this happen. As we were on the brink of world war, he exhorted his fellow citizens of all faiths and creeds to assemble on that day in their several places of worship and there, as well as in their homes, to pray, Almighty God, that He may forgive our sins and to propose only those righteous and to purpose only those righteous acts and judgments which are in conformity with His will. Oh, that the Lord would see fit to once again bring us to humiliation and repentance, not only individually, but as a nation. Lastly, let us consider the grace in national repentance. Verse 10, we read, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that He had said that He would do unto them, and He did it not. It was the Lord's grace that gave the call to repentance for Jonah to proclaim. It was the Lord's grace that enabled the people of this nation of Nineveh to display the act of repentance, and it was the Lord's grace in bringing about His own repentance. This doesn't mean that the Lord would have been wrong in destroying Nineveh, and it doesn't mean that He erred in saying that he, they would be destroyed. Saying that the Lord repented of the evil or that He relented, as other translations put it, is a way of speaking in which human characteristics or emotions are attributed to God to help our understanding. The Lord is just. And He would have been just in destroying the wicked within Nineveh. But He's also just in that He will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. We saw that in God saving Lot from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, we see this 
fact that God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. In fact, this was hinted at even within the call to repentance. Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. The term overthrown is used in reference to the destruction of Sodom. To the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the same word that's used. Overthrown. But that's not the only meaning that the word can have. It doesn't just have to mean to destroy. The root of the word could mean to turn. It mean to turn around. It means to transform. It doesn't have to mean to destroy. And with these different connotations, the use of the word here is hardly accidental. Although Nineveh was not overturned, as in being destroyed, it did experience a turnaround. The Lord was faithful in the call that he made to Nineveh, that they were turned. The hand of the Lord's judgment was stayed because of the turning around of the hearts of the people of Nineveh. And the same can be said of the Lord in staying his hand of wrath against destroying you. The same grace that brought you unto repentance is the very same grace that holds the transformative power to change nations. It's the same power to direct their paths towards righteousness and redemption. And so this ought to encourage you and embolden you to go out and proclaim this call to repentance because you've already experienced the effects of it in your own lives. Pastor Gordon Ketty wisely says, Nineveh calls us to the foot of the cross and asks, what will you do with Jesus? Nineveh points all men and women everywhere to the profound necessity of, the com- of coming to the Lord in repentance and faith. So these questions ought to echo within your own hearts and lives. What will you do with Jesus? What will America do with Jesus? What will the world do with Jesus? The same grace that has been extended to you that has led you to a genuine Repentance and a relationship with Jehovah is extended to the entirety of the world as well. This, my friends, is the grace of national repentance. It's a profound and unmerited gift of a loving and merciful God. In a world that's filled with turmoil and strife, sin and misery, the call to repentance stands as a beacon of hope. Just as Nineveh heeded the call and found redemption, nations today can be transformed by the boundless grace of God.
your own repentance serves as a testament to the life-changing potential of this divine grace. And it ought to inspire you to share this message far and wide. So take to heart the lessons of Nineveh. Let them ignite your passion in spreading the message of repentance. And remember, remember that grace which has touched your life. It has the power to touch and transform this whole world. This is the grace that that redeems. This is the grace that reconciles. This is the grace that renews. Embrace it. Share it. And be an instrument in proclaiming the grace of God in the world in need of salvation. For there is a mighty grace in national repentance. So brothers and sisters, as you live in the world so full of evil and darkness, wickedness and sin, remember that you were called out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Christ Jesus. And if it can happen to you, why not your nation? Psalm 2 says the duty of nations is to kiss the sun. So how, can, how shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Our Lord Jesus Christ used the example of the sign of Jonah and the call to Nineveh to repentance as a means to call nations unto repentance. Matthew 12.41 says, The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. So let us follow in Christ's example using the example of Nineveh in judgment of this nation. Because the people of Nineveh repented at the words of Jonah. But we have a greater than Jonah. We have what Jonah pointed to. Christ. The King of all nations. And that is what we proclaim. And if we call this nation to repentance through the power of Christ as the King over this nation and they reject it, then even Nineveh will rise up in judgment against them. Brothers and sisters, fulfill your duty in calling nations unto repentance. Let's pray. O Lord, we are thankful that Thy Son, Jesus Christ, is King of kings and Lord of lords and reigns as the mediator over all things as the King over the earth. Lord, we do long for that day when every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess 
the Lord Jesus Christ. We long for that day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. We long for that day when the nations of the earth, the kings of the earth, will bend their knee and kiss the sun. O Lord, we long for that day when Thy kingdom shall come and Thy will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Lord, we do call upon our magistrates to repent of their wickedness, to turn of their evil ways, and to submit to King Jesus. And we trust, Lord, in Thy good timing that this will come about. And so we wait for that day. And we ask, Lord, use us as instruments to cause it to take place. Lord, we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Zion's only King and Head. Amen.